You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And first off, I'd like to say that I'm very glad to be back after my uh, uh, several weeks of absence. I hope you all enjoyed Rachel's series about influencers. I thought it was great. This season, this series of episodes is going to be maybe a little bit more serious than some of the ones I've done in the past. You may know me as the guy who, uh, you know, jumped into the world of marijuana in Colorado or brought you inside medieval times uh, in New Jersey. This time, I'm going to be talking to people who work with the homeless or try to help prevent people from becoming homeless. As I'm sure you know, we have a massive housing crisis in this country, and that has helped produce a serious and uh, burgeoning homelessness crisis. You can see it just walking around cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York even, Um, and it's different in every place. It takes different forms, but it's becoming a real humanitarian problem for the United States. And I wanted to, frankly, learn a little bit more about the policy issues, but also just get to know the people who are out there kind of working to help the most vulnerable in society. And hopefully, I'll also be able to bring you an interview giving the other perspective, um, being able to talk to you know someone who is homeless about what it's like trying to hold down a job while they you know lack the stability of having a roof over their heads, or a permanent roof over their heads, I should say. For most people, uh, homelessness, it, it doesn't necessarily start with addiction or mental illness um, or anything like that. I mean, sometimes it does, but often it just starts with an eviction. It starts with financial trouble. You lose your apartment, you can't pay rent, and just one thing leads to another. And one of the classic problems in housing court around the country is that tenants don't necessarily have lawyers. They can't necessarily afford a lawyer. That's why they're there in the first place. But in recent years, New York City has changed that. The de Blasio administration, whatever you might think of it generally, has has created a program that provides lawyers to people who are in housing court the same way you get a lawyer if you are in criminal court. So I spoke with Mark Hess, who is a supervising attorney at the New York Legal Aid Group. And, you know, they're the people who get called when someone needs a lawyer in housing court. We talked about what it's like trying to handle these cases in a system that doesn't necessarily give you a lot of resources. You know, you have to work fast and furious and sort of by the seat of your pants to try and help people who have their homes on the line. I hope you learn a lot from this. I know I did. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Mark Hess. I'm a supervising attorney at the New York Legal Assistance Group, and I represent low-income tenants and eviction cases in New York City. The New York Legal Assistance Group, is that like legal aid? What What is that? Yeah, it's one of a number of legal services organizations in the city that provide free legal services to low-income folks. So some of the larger ones that people kind of know off the bat is the Legal Aid Society or Legal Services NYC. But there's a number of other ones, some that are community-based and some that serve the whole city. What we do specifically at NILAG is that we represent folks in a variety of different types of cases, immigration proceedings, consumer cases, public benefits, a lot of different stuff. And you said you represent tenants. Yep. So you're a housing lawyer. I am. For poor folks. Yes. Who are, I assume, about to be evicted or possibly going to be evicted by their landlords. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the that's the stake and that's the thing that we're trying to avoid. And I know at one point in New York City, you were not guaranteed a lawyer if you ended up in housing court, but that's changed, right? Yeah, that has. So that was an initiative by the city called Universal Access. It's also kind of called the right to counsel. The idea is that in criminal cases, people are afforded a free lawyer if they can't prov- if they can't afford legal services. For civil cases, there's no such right. So New York City and a few other jurisdictions like uh, San Francisco and Newark have kind of pushed the boat out and said, like, look, we're going to make sure that for civil cases where people are at risk of losing losing housing or losing other very important things for them, we're going to go out of our way to ensure that people are afforded justice and afforded a, uh, a fair opportunity to assert their rights in court. So that was back in 2013, the city passed this law called Universal Access, which provides 
free legal services to tenants who are under 200% of the federal poverty line in eviction cases in New York City. And so you're sort of the front lines of that. Exactly. When I started, when I kind of contacted the city about talking to people who work in homelessness services, it was interesting because they said, before I talk to anyone else, I should talk to you. I should talk to someone who's actually in housing court because that is sort of ground zero for how a lot of people end up on in the shelter system, on the streets. Is that sort of the stakes that your clients are facing often, that it's either they keep their apartment or they don't have anything? Is that is that a common situation? Yeah. I mean, that's the reality that we deal with on a daily basis. When a landlord wants to get a, a tenant out of an apartment in New York City, they've got to go through a legal process. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't, which is a whole nother problem. But once you get into housing court, that's where the lawyers kind of, and we step in to ensure that that our clients have a have their rights asserted, mm-hmm. um, that their story is told, which I think is another really important aspect of this, and make sure that the landlords are actually doing what they need to do and kind of following the law. But it's it's really that sort of bleak for some of these clients that it's either keep the apartment they have now or they don't have anything. Exactly. Is, is that just because they're so poor or because they're in rent stabilized or kind of why is that? So. A significant portion of people in the city are living in poverty or on the brink of poverty. And the difficult thing about an eviction is it's both a kind of a symptom of poverty in that, sure, if you make very little money, it's going to be harder to pay your $1,000 a month rent or $1,500 a month rent. It's going to be harder to pay for medical expenses or to help your kids get through school. But also, you know, People go through hardships in life. People lose family members. They need to pay for funeral services. Emergencies come up. People fall behind on their bills. And an eviction can kind of push someone over the edge to a point where it's kind of it causes a kind of cycle of poverty going forward such that like you lose your housing. So you lose your you uh, might not be able to get to your job the next day. You might not have a place to shower and eat. You might not be able to take care of yourself or your family. So the, the stakes are incredibly high and it's, uh, it's exciting, but also, you know, really tough, really tough for our clients. So I'm thinking, trying to put this as a metaphor for myself, but it's like a lot of these clients are sort of standing at the edge of a very, very steep hill and the eviction is, they're, they're teetering over it and the eviction might be a thing that finally just pushes them down that hill yeah. and they're going to start tumbling. Exactly. That's what you're kind of fighting against. Yeah. How long have you been a lawyer for? So I graduated from CUNY School of Law in Queens in 2012. And I've been doing this type of work basically since then. I volunteered in in law school in the housing courts and interned at other legal services organizations. And I've been representing tenants pretty much since then. You're a supervisor, you said. Are you overseeing a bunch of cases or actually in court yourself? Both. So I have kind of primary responsibilities, which is so I represent clients, maybe about like five to 10 clients at a time, which is a reduced caseload for an attorney Mm -hmm. in legal services. So most legal services attorneys doing this type of work are going to be carrying a caseload about 40-ish cases at a given time. So 40 clients that they're doing work for. 40 Um, different civil clients at a time. Wow. Exactly. And I have additional responsibilities, which is to supervise those attorneys, those paralegals, the other support staff that we have to kind of ensure that, one, that they're doing good work and they feel supported, to educate them, to make sure that they know they know the ropes, that they're developing their skill as a lawyer, that they're learning about landlord-tenant law and doing good work. And then it's also making sure that the work is good and that the clients are served, that people feel like they're being heard, and that ultimately we're successful. And this might seem like a weird question, but how old are you? I am 32. Yeah, so we're about the same age. Yeah. I mean, you're supervising a, a bunch of different other attorneys. That, that's fairly young for a lawyer to be sort of in that super. Is, are, is the office in general fairly young? Yeah. I mean, most of the, the attorneys and the paralegals that we end up hiring are pretty much straight out of school. So a lot of our staff probably is in our tenants' rights unit, probably around like in their early 30s and a little bit less than that. Because this program is expanding so rapidly, we're hiring folks straight out of law school 
right after they take the bar, just basically to meet the needs and meet the need of the unrepresented litigants in New York City. It's kind of the young idealist thing also. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you you got to be able to take the pay. Yes, exactly. Like... I think that's true. But on, on the other hand, you know, we are idealists in a way, but also everyone that I work with has very strong sense of values. Like we know we want to be doing this work for years and for decades. Mm -hmm. We know that this fight representing tenants and ensuring housing justice for people is something that's not, uh, isn't a temporary thing. It's not something that we're going to, you know, be doing for a couple of years so we can put it on our resume. These are people who are committed to this fight for years and years and years to make sure that people have justice in their apartment. Well, it's also hard to put like housing court, like defending tenants on, on a legal resume if you're like trying to go to a big firm or oh, something. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> it's I, not usually a ticket to like Mayor Brown or something <laughs> or a cravat. Like. That is very true. However, like the attorneys that we hire get to do legal work right away. Like the people at those large firms, yeah, know, they're yeah. extraordinarily intelligent. But when you get to come to do legal services, you get to represent a client on day one, pretty much. Yeah, you're whereas, doing legal work on day one, which I, is really awesome. Whereas it's a good pitch. Whereas a cravath, you're working on a footnote in page 32 of a prospectus or something. Like, exactly. It's just, yeah, it's not it's not quite the same thing and not the same human drama. Yeah. But how does a client come to you? Where, where does this process start? So people are referred to us in housing court. So when they get referred to, to NILAG or any of the other legal services organizations, they're already in court. So there's no avoiding, you know, a housing court case at that point. So in a way, it's a very, it's the kind of public defender type model. Like we get the cases on the day and then have to start from square one and kind of get caught up to speed as quickly as possible. How do you do that? What's your first meeting with a client like? We have a very small office in the court in the courthouse, which is probably the size of a nice walk-in closet. Uh, it can fit two desks that have two laptops on them and a bookshelf, and that is it. That's that's all. Yeah, we're meeting clients in there because we can't do it in the hallways because all of the business in housing court happens in the hallway. So if you're talking to someone about a confidential issue or even just like a very sensitive issue, uh, like someone endured some trauma or something else that they don't want to articulate in a hallway full of like hundreds of other people. Like we need to find a place that is as, you know, personal and confidential as possible. So you've uh, got your broom closet. Yeah, we've got the broom closet. And, and when you say, just to clarify, when you say all the business of housing court happens in the hallways, you mean that's where lawyers and clients are kind of talking to one another outside the actual courtrooms. Exactly. Yeah. Very little actually happens in front of a judge. It's all negotiations out in the hallway. So you have your broom closet. That's where you have your first meeting. Sorry, I, sh I shouldn't be calling it <laughs> That's fine. Closet. You can call it a broom closet. Like, it that, was a broom closet. closet. Oh, was it really? <laughs> yeah, I think well, so. so. So that's actually an interesting thing to me. I know we're going off a little bit off the rails here, but I, I visited, I saw you guys working in housing court. Yeah. It's the civil court building. And I think Maybe for most listeners, when you imagine the courts in New York City, you imagine law and order and, you know, the grand staircase heading up to the, the you know, the superior court of the state of New York, the criminal courts and, you know, these large kind of old, I guess, New Deal era, maybe courtrooms. I'm not even sure. Housing courts not like that. The rooms are small and it is. I remember I was looking at like an office, not just for you guys, but I think it was maybe an administrative office that was an ex courtroom that had been converted and they'd put a bunch of desks in it. I mean, it seems, I mean, it's a it's a little bit of a threadbare operation in there. Yes, it is. And a lot of the, the courtrooms are very small. At times, not everyone can fit in the courtroom. So people, even more people are spilling out into the hallway because they can't, not everyone can physically sit in a courtroom. I walked in and I saw you doing a case. It's not like you're standing up and like, remonstrating before the judge, you're all at a table right in front of them. Like you're all with your elbow to elbow with the the tenant's lawyer and the attorney that you're supervising. You're all kind of there together. Yes. It's very close quarters. And I mean, the nice thing is it's personal. So you yeah. you can see people's reactions. You can kind of like get a sense of what the landlord's attorney who's sitting next to you is going to the next question that they're going to ask or the next piece of evidence that they want to try to get in. So in that way, it's very interesting. However, it's certainly not ideal. Yeah, I mean, you can probably feel if they're sweating. Yes, <laughs> yes, and smell them too. <laughs> Great. It's, you're also right below the judge. I mean, the judge is sitting 
right above you. Yeah. Like they're kind of looking down. It's not they're looking at, they're looking down at you. Does that like change the dynamic a little bit that you're kind of staring up at them? It definitely does. I mean, I think one of the things that's difficult about housing court is that people don't perceive it as an actual court where legal issues are being hashed out. So to the extent that a judge wants to get in their robe and sit on a bench that is higher than me to reinforce the idea that they're the judge, that they're the decider, whereas landlord attorneys, are, it's not uncommon for them to talk back to a judge or to talk to the court staff as if they are the judge. I'm totally fine with the judge asserting his or her position in the courtroom. I want to come back to that dynamic you just mentioned later. But before we do, I should probably get back to my first question, which is you go into your office kind of in the courthouse and you meet with the person. So what is that conversation like? So it's tough. I mean, a lot of people don't know who we are. They're not even aware that they can be provided a free lawyer for their housing court case. One of the things that we need to do is to get the message out to to the communities that we're serving to say like, look, you have this right and we're going to provide that service for you. But it's a lot of, you know, basic introductions, trying to gather all the facts as quickly as possible, because Mm -hmm. not only are we trying to meet with this one person to give them all of our attention and listen to them, give them advice about where we think the case is going to go and how we're going to handle the case. But also we know we have five or 10 other people who are waiting to speak with us. How long is the conversation usually last where you're doing this kind of information gathering? Unfortunately, it's only about 30 minutes. In an ideal world, it would be significantly longer. Yeah. but So you have a half hour to unpack this person's whole financial life and their legal situation. Exactly. And you're also listening for a lot of people. This is a very, I mean, it's a stressful experience for anyone. It's an extraordinarily stressful experience for someone who is used to being steamrolled, for someone who is used to not being heard by someone, for someone who is being uh, just dismissed out of right. So it's important for us to make sure that they don't feel that way. What are the five things? I'm your client. I'm I'm on the verge of eviction, it seems like. What are the five things you want to know? So it depends on the type of case, but I would I would start with just getting a basic lay of the land. Like who lives in the apartment? Where how long have you been living in there? Like uh what's your sources of income? Things like that. The other thing is kind of investigating in a way, starting to investigate the the landlord's claims. So that is if the apartment is rent regulated in any way, is it rent stabilized? Is it rent controlled? Does it involve any type of federal subsidies? Because oftentimes tenants aren't necessarily aware of what their apartment status is. And landlords, although they're required to state that basic information in the, in the petition, which is kind of uh, housing court speak for a complaint. The thing you file trying to sue somebody. Exactly. Yeah. They, three quarters of the time, do not state properly what's going on in the apartment. So we're trying to figure that out too. I want you to rewind that a little bit or I talk about that a little bit more. So when someone files a lawsuit in this court, they're half the time not even actually explaining the whole situation. You have to go on a fact-finding mission. Exactly. The barrier to entry in housing court is extraordinarily low. For the landlord. For the landlord. Okay. And so, I mean, what kind of stuff is, you said like it's federal status. What other kind of stuff is typically missing? A lot of times landlords aren't properly crediting tenants for payments. So payments go missing. I'm air quoting. Uh, That's most often the case. The regulatory status and have payments actually been made are misrepresented the vast majority of the time. So it sounds like it's, you meet your client you try to get their situation, get them to tell you about it. They may not actually know the full situation and you have to start an investigative process. Exactly. Is that the next step or does something else happen? Uh, well, I think there's other pieces of information that we're trying to glean from the client too. So we're trying to like come up with a legal theory. Like why did this, why is this case started? Why did the landlord sue our client to try to evict them from this apartment mm-hmm. and try to figure out what's going on there? Once we kind of have those basic facts together, we're most often representing the client on that day. So we're filing a notice of appearance, which lets the court know that we're representing them. And then we're going to the landlord's attorney and almost always asking for a postponement of the case because there's 
only so much that we could learn in that 30-minute initial meeting. But the expectation going in is that you're actually going to show up in court that day and have a hearing. Yep. How often do they say, okay, we can postpone? These days, more and more. Initially, it was significantly less. Judges expected us to just know everything about a case after 30 minutes. And I think one of the changes over the last several years on part of judges is knowing that ethically, we have a duty or to our clients, and we're not going to be able to represent someone 100% and know all the facts on the first day, like within a couple hours. So we need time to investigate all the facts to get the client's story and learn more about the situation. That's really crazy to me that there ever would have been time that someone was expected to do a civil case in like 30 minutes, <laughs> like put together, like, I mean, I imagine there's a bunch of paperwork and stuff you have to, you have to gather too, right? And, and like documentation. Exactly. How often do clients even have that walking in? They oftentimes do not have that. So apart from the barrier of knowing what your rights are, it's even the barrier to accessing your rights. Mm-hmm. So we have the time to do research to different city and state agencies, to go online to different resources, to find out, does the landlord actually own the building, which is a common thing. Wait, really? And uh, yeah, landlords will start or a person will start a case against someone and they may or not be the actual proper party. Who's who's suing? Is it like, the who's the landlord think? Is it they run a company? Wait, I th- my mind just kind of melted a little bit. <laughs> How does someone who does not own the property sue someone to, to kick them out of their house? Yeah, it's oftentimes a problem in Brooklyn and Queens where you have unscrupulous people taking advantage of people who are in dire financial circumstances or very elderly, infirm people, and misrepresenting things like, "Oh, well, you know, I'll let you live in the in the house forever if you just sign me." sign the deed over to me for a dollar or something like that. These are fraudulent, essentially fraudulent transactions where people are taking over houses. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, wait, so they're, they're like scams where they're trying to get an old person's property, essentially, and then evict them. Exactly. How often does something like that happen? Uh, well, there are a number of cases that uh, DAs in Brooklyn and Queens are pursuing right now. Yeah. The problem is there's not a lot of people checking over this stuff. So a lot of these problems... We see on a very, we see anecdotally, but you'd have to imagine that these are things that are happening much more broadly throughout the city. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing you have to figure out if it might be happening as soon as you walk into court. Like exactly. You, and so you have, to, but usually you get a, I mean, I imagine if an attorney is representing someone who is running a scam, they're not going to want to let you postpone the case and investigate it. Uh, so how often do you, I mean, do you get pushback where they try to, kind of limit your time or limit your ability to go digging? Absolutely. Yeah. So we have landlord attorneys who are used to getting what they want, Yeah. which is they're used to getting judgments for money or for possession of an apartment and forcing people out like in a matter of weeks or months. So when we come into court and tell them, no, what you're, what you're saying is incorrect. We need time to investigate it more. There is, uh, we get a tremendous amount of pushback. Some of it, uh, I think some of the landlord's attorneys are kind of coming around that this will actually make their job easier in a way to actually have two lawyers instead of a pro se litigant on the other side. A number of attorneys will not adjust to this new system. They are people who regularly berate our attorneys, who curse at them, who use sexist, racist language towards people is and that, our clients. Is that, th- that doesn't happen in the courtroom, does it? Or I, It has happened in the courtroom. Really? In front of the judge? Uh, yes. Can you give me an example? Like what kind of thing? I mean, like, feel free. This is not censored. Like what kind of thing do people, have you heard a landlord's attorney say? So some of it is coded language, calling a client of ours who's a person of color, calling them a thug. Uh, stuff uh, like that, yeah. Th- things like that. I've heard attorneys call one of our attorneys a dipshit. Things like that are... In court? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's wild to me. Yeah. Part of what we're doing now is changing the culture around all this stuff. Some people won't change, unfortunately. It just sounds like housing court's sort of the Wild West. It really is. It's procedurally a Wild West because the court has never had as many lawyers representing tenants. It's the Wild West because 
landlord attorneys and landlords are used to getting what they want, which is money or possession as soon as possible. Doesn't matter what the legal issues are. They think I've started a case, so I'm going to get it. I'm going to get the apartment back. I'm going to get all of this money. So yes, it is the Wild West, but what we're trying to do for our, particularly for our clients is to make sure that it's not the Wild West, that it's something orderly. It's something that ensures that they have a fair shake and they're, they're going to get justice in their case. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. In a normal civil case, there's a whole discovery process, right? If you get sued, you have the right to then kind of go digging for evidence to prove that, no, I'm actually not liable. I'm... I'm not the guilty party here. I, I didn't do this thing that you claim I did, or I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't have to pay. Um, do you have those kinds of discovery powers in housing court? Are you able to like go and investigate the landlord's claims using, you know, the power of the court or is it just, how do you dig around? So we don't get discovery as of right, meaning we need to ask the judge for discovery mm -hmm. uh, and the judge kind of over judge oversees everything. So in that case that you kind of saw in court, we had some documents about the extent of the work that the landlord did to renovate this apartment, but we, we didn't get everything we wanted. And a lot of other cases you show up to trial, even after discovery happens and there's witnesses you've never heard of that are coming to testify. There's pieces of evidence that are attempted to introduce to be introduced into the record that you've never seen before. So it's extraordinarily difficult to litigate those type of cases. You just have to be kind of ready for anything. You have to be ready for anything. And you also, I think it's important for us to know that this is, a, this is one of several flaws in the system and we've got to try to change it. Can you tell me about some of your clients right now, who they are, what kind of cases they're facing? I would say the majority of our cases are non-payment cases. So that's someone falling behind on rent for any number of reasons. I had a client earlier this year who um, was owned and operated a bodega uptown up 
in upper Manhattan. Uh, and he had, unfortunately, uh, one of his children passed away. And so not only the trauma of that, but also, you know, caring for his extended family in the apartment. Um, so in a situation like that, we're trying to get money together and get him back current on rent to make sure that he and his family are housed and safe. I also had a, a decision on a case from earlier this year, which is kind of addresses the, the f- rampant fraud issues that landlords are perpetuating throughout the city, which is, you know, a client of mine was able to pay the rent in a two-bedroom apartment, like a few blocks off from Central Park. And when- Rent-controlled or- Rent-stabilized. Rent-stabilized, yeah. Um, I was going to say, that's that's the only way anybody can- Yeah. <laughs> <it's>, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he- he lost his job and fell behind on his rent and he came to us and we did some investigation and kind of saw that the landlord had improperly increased the rent a whole bunch. So after trial, um, which again, we weren't sure what the outcome was going to be on that, on that day, we felt pretty good about our defenses, but once it gets to trial, that concludes, we get a decision from the judge getting him making the apartment rent stabilized again. So previously it wasn't rent stabilized. We get like a huge judgment in our favor, meaning that my client had actually overpaid for a significant portion of his tenancy for the rent and has a judgment in his favor. So things like that are huge wins for us, which is awesome. You said you try to get as much time as you can to investigate and explore one of these cases, but how long does one of them typically last? So there's two main types of cases in housing court, a non-payment case and a holdover case. Mm -hmm. So non-payment cases are issues where someone hasn't paid their rent. I think those cases generally last anywhere from two months to six months, depending on how complex they are. Uh, The other type of cases are holdover cases, meaning someone has broken some term of their lease. Either they are renting it out on Airbnb or the landlord is alleging that one of the tenants is is a nuisance, is causing issues in the building. And those cases generally will last from like six months to two or three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. A very long time. How often are you talking to your clients and meeting with them in the course of either of these cases? How, how high touch is this? At least once a week, if not more. And not only are we interacting with clients, but a lot of our clients are suffering from other mental, like mental illness or other disabilities, which make resolution of their case slightly more difficult. So not only are we talking to clients, but we're also talking to kind of what we call client collaterals. So these are family members who are helping our client out. They're case managers at social services organizations. They're case managers at different city agencies to make sure that we're, that kind of, we have a lot of different people on board to help our client as much as possible. Do you ever have a client who just really doesn't know what's going on or just doesn't really understand what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So that happens somewhat frequently. And when we do that, either the court will appoint what's called a guardian ad litem, which is someone basically to kind of stand in the shoes of our client and help them make decisions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's, uh, we have to do what's called an article 81 guardian, which is a significantly higher level of guardianship where basically someone takes over someone's financial life uh, to kind of ensure that they're still able to live safely in their apartment or to kind of live their life safely. And that's a call that you guys have to make sometimes or? Um, As lawyers, I don't think we're qualified to do that. I mean, I think we we have a... Who who makes that call? A lot of times, most often the city will do it um, because the city has people on staff to visit with people who may be in need and evaluate someone for any type of mental mental illness or mental health conditions that need to be addressed. Is it mental health? Is it also, is it age? Is it all, all the above? Or I mean, it's tough. Sometimes it's tough to separate those. Yeah. This might sound like a weird question, but do you ever lose clients? I mean, do clients ever just disappear? Yes, it does happen. Either time. What, what do you do in that situation? So we will do whatever we can to get in touch with someone. So that is uh, calling, texting, sending letters, stopping by the apartment. We'll make referral to city agencies that might be able to help out to kind of investigate where someone is. We'll call family members. We'll do whatever we can. There are a, a small minority of cases where we actually have to leave a case because we can't find our client. I feel like 
whether you're a defense attorney or a prosecutor, there's certain kind of cases just pop up over and over again. And I feel like you've kind of hinted at some of those, like the fraud cases or cases where a landlord makes improvements and then jacks up the rent too high. But what are the kinds of cases you just see over and over again? Most often, it's non-payment cases where someone's fallen behind on rent or the landlord is alleging that someone fell behind on rent. Those we see a lot of because, again, the majority of our clients are living either in poverty or on the precipice of poverty. So you're much more likely to fall behind on rent if you got to pay an extra $500 to a family member to make sure that they that they get health care that they need, it's things like that. Those non-payment cases, is it that the tenant actually has stopped paying the rent and that they need to fix that? Or is it that the landlord is typically alleging they haven't or not crediting them? I mean, I guess, are your clients kind of, not to use the word in a technical sense, but guilty often? So I think it's a whole lot of gray in there. The reason why I say that is there's a number of reasons why a tenant may not pay their rent. And Mm -hmm. that is a lot of our clients are living in substandard housing where landlords are refusing to make repairs. So in that case, people are entitled to a reduction in their a reduction in their rent if the landlord is failing to fix a leak in their bedroom or to do other things, to repair an appliance that's broken, things like that. People will withhold their rent. And in other circumstances, I think when there's a an imperative to harass or to force out tenants from rent-regulated housing, checks go missing by happenstance. Thing, other things happen that make this situation much more complicated. Sure, there is a portion of our clients who fall behind on their rent, but almost always there's a good reason and we ought not to... We certainly don't. And I think we as a society should not look down on people who see it more fit to make sure that their kid has some new clothes to go to school in September and maybe not pay their full rent for a month or two. Are you typically trying to win outright, like get a judgment, or are you trying to come to sort of uh, an agreeable settlement? It's most often a settlement. And we're, in most of their cases, playing defense for the uh, for the whole time to either delay things for our client to get uh, caught up on rent, to connect them to other services that can help them get caught up on rent. It's a very few cases actually go to trial or get to an advanced stage, mostly because we know what the stakes are. The stakes are if one of our clients loses, they're going to be evicted. They're going to be homeless, uh, which can put someone into a cycle of poverty, which we're trying to avoid. The stakes are really high for our clients. When you do negotiate settlements, is that all basically in the hallway? It's all in the hallway. How many settlements have you personally negotiated in a courtroom hallway? Oh, geez. Let's see. So considering I've been handling 40-ish clients at a time um, over um, almost six, five or six years, I mean, I've probably done hundreds and hundreds of those. And so have our attorneys. Is there any paperwork at that point? Like, how are you doing it? Like, it's like, it's just verbal. It's like a handshake. How does that work? Housing court is extraordinarily archaic and has not advanced into the 21st century as far as technology. So this is actually very fascinating because so when a party is negotiating a settlement, they are in the hallway, they're talking, they come to agreement on some basic terms, and then someone starts writing down the settlement. The settlement isn't typed. The settlement isn't produced in a way that is easy for someone to continually edit it. It's usually produced on paper that is provided by the court in quadruplicate. So, Like one of those pieces of paper, it's got four like thin sheets behind it. Exactly. And you're just writing with a pen and that's, that's how you're writing the settlement. Exactly. And the problem with that, I mean, it doesn't take... Uh, someone a lot of time to come up with a lot of problems with that. Usually the first copy is decent. Everything below that is awful. Uh, Oftentimes you're writing very quickly, so you don't have the most legible handwriting. And landlord attorneys are notorious for awful handwriting. So it is oftentimes people will leave court with a sheet of paper that has unintelligible words on it and they don't really know what they're supposed to do or what the terms of their settlement were. You're just, you're scribbling a legal settlement in the side hall of, of the, outside the, outside the courtroom. 
Yeah, it's where do you do you fi- and and I, and that's what you take away to your office at the end of the day. Yeah, pretty much. And you just put that in a filing cabinet. Uh, so is it ever digitized? I guess is there ever a point where <laughs> this gets put on a computer somewhere where it'll be for posterity? The court has said that they're going to digitize their records at at one point and do e filing, which basically means that if you file something, it get can be filed electronically. I'm not sure when that's going to happen. That's been something that the court has been saying would happen for a number of years, but it hasn't happened yet. But I think one of the things that we need to do as tenant lawyers to make sure that we're representing our clients adequately is to make sure that we have contemporaneous records of settlements that we're digitizing things as soon as possible, meaning Mm -hmm. that if it's just a matter of bringing it back to the office and putting it through the scanner or taking a picture with your phone and putting it into a like into a file going that way is um so you're you're self digitizing you're taking you're getting your iPhone out and taking a snapshot of something that was written in a quadruplicate yes and exactly putting that on your computer yes it's the, very bizarre the the whole this is interesting to me also though because i mean the whole housing court is just totally analog there's no digital anything absolutely it's very weird, especially because I need to train new staff on how to use fax machines. Jesus. Yeah. You you guys and, and I, well, I guess hospitals are the only other people exactly. still. So you, you have to train Gen Z people at this point <laughs> <laughs> who've never, yeah, I never guess, known life without the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think we could progress to a point where a marshal or someone else could accept legal papers via text, but we're not there yet. <laughs> I mean, do, do documents just get lost? So for us, I mean... I encourage all of our staff to digitize things as much as possible, taking pictures, scanning things. And for us, I think it's pretty easy because on a given day, we may only be representing like two or three clients in the morning. So from 930 to one o'clock, which is an appropriate amount of time to re- give someone to represent uh, a client. Landlords attorneys are notoriously disorganized. And the reason is because their business model is representing as many landlords on a given day as possible. So they have upwards of 10, 15, 20 cases on a given morning, and they are just notoriously disorganized. So papers falling out of like files and different, like one briefcase has this in it, but it doesn't have that in it. It's, it's, it's awful. How much do you have to know about carpentry at this point? <laughs> I, I ask because when I came to see you work, it was a case involving a woman who I, I guess her landlord had sort of claimed to have made a certain amount of repairs on her apartment. And you guys were saying and upped her rent. And you guys were arguing that no, the repairs had been nowhere near that expensive. And I was watching you sort of depose a witness who had come in and looked at the apartment and said, there's no way that the repairs cost this much. And there was lots of talk about floors dipping and uh, and sort of uh, electrical work. And it, it was bringing me back to my one summer it, working in interior construction. I said, so how much of your life is just knowing about carpentry? Uh, a decent amount. And you learn weird stuff like this. And the reason why you end up learning about carpentry or about electrical work in apartments is because you need to develop that specialty to represent someone and to ensure that, you know, someone is getting... Uh, is having their rights vindicated because in that one of the issues in that case and that you kind of saw, which is a very weird thing that a landlord could claim an improvement for flooring where they did, they took out the whole flooring, did subflooring and then flooring on top of that. However, they would not be able to claim an increase if they didn't redo the subfloor and just put another floor on top of a floor. My head's spinning right now. Yes. I <laughs> I can't give you a legal rationale for why that is, but that's the way that it is. That's the law. Yes. Yeah, so and, and we should we should clarify that this is this is in rent stabilized apartments. Yeah. That landlords can increase the rent by more if they supposedly do a certain amount of repairs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise in the free like in market rate apartments, there's no regulations like that. A landlord can pretty much do whatever they want. Yeah. But it sounds like the actual rules of, of that game are, are pretty arcane. Yes. Are there any other just like bizarre home improvement things that you've learned in the um, process? <laughs> uh, one of my early cases, we had to, the landlord was alleging that we had, my client was making a lot of noise in the apartment. And he might have been doing that because it was tough for him to get around. But there was also other th- 
personal things going on in his personal life that kind of aggravated that circumstance. However, as a way to kind of ensure that my client could keep the apartment and there would be less noise, we agreed to kind of put padding underneath a rug yeah. to kind of make it softer. And my client is was disabled and unable to like really do that. So he purchased the the padding and then I went in there with a few other <laughs> interns one summer and replit like took up his his you uh, were his personally carpet. you were the you were doing the renovation yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. you were you were the guy yeah you were the hired labor that day exactly so that's service for a client yeah. yeah that's that's going the extra mile it is if you have a client who comes in and says my landlord jacked up my rent too much and because they claimed they made these improvements that they didn't how do you prove that the landlord's lying i mean again you don't necessarily have all those investigative powers so how do you how do you go about that a lot of it is finding publicly available information that we can get. So that is searching on uh, different city agencies like the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, which records fines and violations for housing code stuff. We go to the Department of Buildings, which is where if someone wants to do an alteration to an apartment, they've got to get a permit from the Department of Buildings. And ideally, those permits are are located there. Things like that. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of the stuff isn't recorded anywhere. It's a landlord just paying a super or some other some other contractor a little bit of money to go into the apartment and do it. And there's no records being kept. Or if there are records being kept, they magically disappear. Do you often just like find your own guy to go in and say, oh, this like to take a look at the work and say, this is what it costs? I, I noticed that was a technique it seemed like you'd used in that case. Yeah, we had. And that was... Uh, Generally, for our clients, that's not an option that's available to them. And the reason why is they need to pay a contractor because, unfortunately, we're legal services organizations. We have very uh, – money is tight for us. We don't have $500, $1,000 to pay a contractor to go and investigate and evaluate the work that someone did. Luckily, in that case, our client had connected with someone at church and like found a friend at church who did this. And he was able to help us out. You got an expert witness kind of by luck. Yes. To some extent. Is that, I mean, are those cases also pretty just kind of every day, like landlords trying to jack up rent more by doing repairs? Is that is that a, a big part of the caseload? Uh, that has been. Yeah. the. There was a new set of rent laws passed in Albany in mid-June that have kind of changed the game for rent-stabilized tenants in New York City. So they've done a lot of important things to protect the rights of tenants and to ensure that tenants are able to stay in their apartments and that the profit incentive for a landlord to kick out a tenant is lessened. So for example, uh, one of the things that was a huge change for us is these um, uh, apartment improvements are now capped at $15,000 over a certain period of years. And uh, they can only claim a certain fraction of a certain improvement during that time. So things like that are able to, like, thanks to great work by tenant organizers, by tenant lawyers and other organizations, you know, convinced Albany to make these changes to ensure that tenants aren't facing this level of harassment and landlords don't have the same profit incentive. So what is your day like typically? I mean, like when you, what, how do you start your day? Um, like when I wake up, how do I start my day or how do I start my day in the office? <laughs> Sure. Let's go with wake up. Uh, <laughs> how so, much coffee do you drink? Oh my God. I sometimes ask this. So how many cups? You, I've been trying to tail off, but usually I'm up at six or six thirty, and I am, you know, I wake up, I make my cup of coffee, I make my green drink. I am usually in the office sometime between eight and eight thirty, and I'm there from then until six or six thirty, which isn't awful, but it's not the best, and. Uh, some of those days I'm in court, usually in the morning, either with my own cases or more often than not, supervising other attorneys and checking in to see what they're doing and how they're doing it. Other than that, it's meeting with attorneys and our other staff to uh, check in about their cases and to go over legal strategies, to review legal writing, things like that. And then also it's it's a lot of 
as a supervisor, I have an additional kind of like HR-ish type role, which is to ensure that people feel supported, that people feel happy in their job and that they wake up in the morning, they want to come to work and they want to continue to fight for tenants. On a court day, how many cases in a day will you be dealing with? For me, because I have a reduced caseload, it's it's usually like just one case. What if you add in all the other lawyers you're supervising? Oh, yeah. So on a given day, we might have upwards of 10 attorneys in court, and each of them may have anywhere from one to three cases. So at any point, our team in our Manhattan team, which is now about 15 or 16 attorneys, could be representing upwards of like 20 or 30 clients on a given day. And so you'll be visiting with all those attorneys in the course of the day yep. at court. Are you sitting in the courtroom watching them? Are you meeting them in the hallways? It's a little bit of both. So, and everyone is slightly different. So for those newer attorneys who are straight out of who are straight out of law school, it may require more intense supervision. So like talking to them about the case every like uh, every so often, reviewing any type of settlement or any, any other thing that they're working on on that given day. But there's also attorneys that I supervise who have been doing this for three or four years and they're like, they're pretty good. They don't necessarily need me to tell them what to do. We might just chit chat about strategy and check in about how things are going. But for folks like that, I don't need to uh, supervise as intently. What does your actual office look like? So my office is maybe half the size of the studio that we're in now. Um, okay. It's bigger than a broom closet. It's bigger than a broom closet. It has space for my desk, a few pieces of art, uh, my diplomas, and a whiteboard that has all of the things that I need to do on it, yeah. and then uh, a filing cabinet with all the files that I'm working on. So New York Legal Assistance Group does not have you all just sitting out in a big open pen. They So as a supervisor, I have the privilege of, a, of an office. There are attorneys and other staff who don't have offices, which can be a challenge in a number of different ways, because if you want to meet with someone or even just talk with someone on the phone and have a confidential conversation with them, it can be difficult in that open office setting. But I try to make my office, and I do make my office available to any of the attorneys and paralegals if they need to talk to someone, if they need to meet with a client or even just make a call to someone, they could use my office, no problem. What is the case you are proudest of winning? Every lawyer's got one. Yeah, I think there's two that I can really think of. One was a case that I talked about earlier, which was just a, a deregulation case where we won a significant victory for the client, which was a large judgment in his favor. The Central and, Park client. Who, yes, Yeah. exactly. Um, the landlord is appealing that case, but we feel very strong about the merits of it. I think the other one that kind of hit home for me as a as a person was... I had a a client who was asserting succession rights to his partner's rent control department in the West Village. And kind of the backstory there was my client had cared for uh, his same-sex partner for 10 or 15 years as his health was failing. They lived together in a in a rent control department in the West Village where the landlord was not conceding an inch throughout the whole case. And the reason why was because their rent was like $400 or $500. And this is like a two-bedroom apartment in the West Village. It could easily go for like oh, multiples of that. Yeah. <laughs> An order uh, of magnitude. Exactly. Well, not quite, but still. And actually, so, maybe. Yeah, that that yeah, that could be an order of magnitude higher. Yeah. <laughs> that could actually be 10 times. <laughs> yeah. These are the economic incentives at play. Yeah, so we won we won that case for our client and was he was able to succeed to the apartment, which basically means he got to take over the tenancy. And I think what inspired me about that case and what I love about it is it was an opportunity to tell someone's story. And very rarely that you get to make a personal connection with a client and with their story and to be able to learn what they've gone through over the years and how much it meant to live in their apartment with their partner and maintain a sense of home there. And to be able to learn that story and then relay that to a judge who then agreed with us was profoundly impactful for me. One thing you mentioned, now that you're talking about kind of storytelling, but when, when I met you at court, you mentioned that you don't actually always know whether or not you're going to get to give a final statement before the judge. That You don't know if there's going to be sort of a closing argument or not in, in a trial. How do you prep that? How do you deal with that? Well, 
I think for us, we prepare for any eventuality. So we had prepared an oral closing statement on that case. The judge didn't necessarily allow it, but what she did allow was a written uh, memorandum of law after the trial, which is great because it allows us to summarize the facts of the case and also apply analogize to different cases that were similar. And that is something that's going to be submitted in the next in the next day or two for us. Have you ever been surprised or have you ever been kind of ambushed where you suddenly had to do a statement on the fly? Uh, pretty frequently, because a lot of times you're you go into court and you think X is going to happen. And then the judge tells you, uh, 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 I don't want to do that. You're doing it this way. And in which case you are kind of just reverting back to your training and to your fundamentals. And if you have good fundamentals and if you have a good story that you can rely on, you can at least make something up on the fly. It's just time to give a speech. Exactly. That's that's like that nightmare where you're like going to call on to give a toast or something. And <laughs> it's all of a sudden you have to get up and talk. What does it feel like when you lose? So losing is subjective. Sometimes Someone might say we lost a case if a client ultimately had to move out of an apartment. But sometimes for us, it's a matter of letting the client know that they're not going to win the case and giving them enough time to find their next step to move into a new apartment. There are cases where like, it goes south and we do lose no matter how you define it. That can be crushing. However, I think it's important to keep that perspective about what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, we might have lost this case for this client, and that is incredibly painful. However, I know that the work that we're doing as part of, as tenant lawyers and as part of uh, universal access and right to counsel is that on a whole, we're going to make tenants' lives more just, and we're going to make the city more just by fighting for them. When you have to break the news to a client that they're probably going to lose their apartment, lose their home. I'm sure they react in all sorts of different ways, but how would you say they usually react or how how bad does it get? Very rarely is it outwardly bad. I think people take bad news in a lot of different ways. And more often than not, people take it, I think I think they're frustrated and they're and they're also sad that they've lost, but I will have done a bad job if I hadn't prepared them for something like that. If I hadn't advised them, like, look, your chances of success here are minimal and you need to prepare for that. So the best case scenario, we've prepared them for that news. There are people who won't be able to process that in a healthy way. And especially I imagine the people with mental illnesses, it's got to be really tough to convey what's happening, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's tough. It's particularly tough because. I think we as lawyers like to feel in control. Uh, we like to kind of know what's going to happen and then react to it. And when we see a client of ours who we've developed a connection with over weeks and months and potentially even years, not be able to exercise that level of control over their lives, that is really tough. That's a really tough thing to face. And it can be very disheartening for us. Have you ever had a client lash out at you? Yeah, I've had clients like yell at me. I had one, I had a client accuse me of sleeping with the landlord's lawyer and with a judge. Wow. Um, yeah. Was it just because they were frustrated, angry? Was it a mental health thing that they decided that? or I think it's a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Those cases are tough when you work really hard for someone and they react aggressively either verbally or even sometimes like physically towards you. And that is tough. Physically? And, yeah. You've, have you have you seen lawyers get assaulted? I've seen clients like get in get in the face of lawyers. I haven't seen an assault or yeah. anything like that. But get um, aggressive. Like yeah, to get aggressive. But those are things that happen like once every five or ten years. Like the vast majority of our clients are like wonderful people who are just trying to make sure that themselves and their families are able to like live a meaningful and healthy life in their apartments. Do you ever follow up with clients after their case is done? I have a few clients who have kept in touch with me over the years, um, which is really nice. You get to like see that you've made a difference in someone in someone's life. Have you ever seen a client end up homeless afterwards? Yeah, I've seen, uh, I don't know that I've seen, I've witnessed a client be homeless or know enough about their personal circumstance, like after the fact enough to to say that one way or another. Is there anything else that you think uh, people should know about working in this field right now? It's an exciting time. 
because we're doing something in New York City that no one else is really doing in the U.S. Newark and San Francisco have started implementing their program, but New York City is really the vanguard of this movement, not only for providing representation to low-income tenants across the board, but I think we also feel part of a larger tenant movement that is fighting for economic justice, social justice, to ensure that this city is a more equitable place to live. And I think that's a hugely exciting moment for not only for tenant lawyers and the people that uh, work alongside us, it's an exciting move moment for tenants and our clients. It's an exciting moment for the people that are organizing communities across the city. Over the time that you've been doing this job, how would you say it's changed or how is it changing? I think the major change that we're seeing right now is that actual legal work is getting done in housing court. So tenants have had lawyers since housing court was a thing, but it was a very small minority so that Prior to universal access and right to counsel, about like 1% of tenants were represented by counsel. And Is that now, small? It was that small. Wow. So it's it's inching up there. I believe last year the numbers were about a third. And over the course of this program of universal access, it's going to be significantly higher. And so before then, it was just a tenant walking into court and just trying to make an argument for themselves. And 99% of the time. Exactly. And that's yeah. the the difficult thing was everyone operated in as if that were the norm, as if there were no legal arguments to be made, that it was the landlord started a case. So therefore, they're entitled to the money they're in, or they're entitled to possession of the apartment or they're entitled to both. I think now the way that it's changing is that there are many more tenant lawyers in court making legal arguments and forcing everyone to confront the uncomfortable reality, which is this situation, housing in New York is far more complicated than they thought it was, and that we're asserting legal arguments that we knew had existed, but are now being asserted on a daily basis to the point where we're forcing judges to make decisions on merits, and we're forcing landlords um, and their lawyers to confront the facts and the legal issues about cases. So before, it sounds like it was almost like an administrative process. It just got going and the machine just kind of rolled on. And now you're actually making motions and <laughs> making real real arguments about whether or not something's legal. Exactly. And like it's a, fu- it's a fundamental issue of due process. And I hate to speak so high-mindedly about our constitution, but that's what we're afforded. And that's what our, that's what our clients ought to be afforded. Um, and we're here making those legal arguments to ensure that their rights are being vindicated. Are judges always used to that? Or do some of them treat it like sort of an administrative thing still? Many still treat it like an administrative thing. So you may present a, leg- a very clear legal argument and the judge will say, that may result in dismissal of the case. But the judge will say something along the lines of, okay, well, that's an argument you can make at trial. So basically, she, he or she is just kicking the can down the road in the hopes that the parties will agree to some settlement, whereas really the judge should address the legal merits of a, of a legal argument and dismiss the case or not dismiss the case. Right, like pretrial, you would in a normal civil case, that's you get a summary judgment or something along those lines before exactly. you ever go to a trial. Yeah, because a lot of the filing and the issues when landlords start cases is that these aren't, they're improper in a number of different ways. But judges are kind of getting used to it. Exactly. And I think the opportunity there is that these judges are lawyers too. They generally like the thrill of argument, of a battle of ideas and Once we're starting to change that perspective of parties that this is, as lawyers, this is more exciting than just rubber stamping settlements and rubber stamping evictions, that we're actually going to get to a place where we're doing excellent legal work in housing court. That's fascinating. It's a project to convince judges that they are actually judges in a civil court. Yeah. <laughs> you have to convince them that this is really their job. Yeah. They're not just, they're not bureaucrats. Yeah. What is the most frustrating thing you've ever had a judge pull in a case? 
I had a judge write a decision that wasn't applicable to my case. Like, I think what happened was that she heard oral arguments on two different cases, one right after the other, and issued a decision on the first case on my case and then the decision on my case to the first case. Are you kidding me? I kid you not. So <laughs> when I got this decision, which was not applicable, didn't include any of the facts of my of my case, was not applicable at all. I was just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. And the landlord's attorney was just like, well, I'm not going to do anything because the decision was in my favor. (laughs) (laughs) He tried to run with it. So then I had to go back to that judge and say, Your Honor, I think there may have been an error in the decision that you made. Would you possibly reconsider this? Luckily, she did that. But it was one of those moments where I was like, what am I doing here? (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Talk about Wild West. Yes. (laughs) Mark, thank you for coming in and talking about all this. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or just, you know, send me some feedback at workingatslate.com. Always love to hear from you guys. Working is produced by the indefatigable. Is that how you pronounce that word? Indefatigable? (laughs) At Jessamine Molly. She's a fantastic producer. She's the one who makes this all happen. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Weissman. Catch us next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.